Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 12. We'll look at that chapter this morning. And the text is also in the bulletin. Uh, so this chapter is a focal point in, uh, in the revelation of Jesus to John. It's a focal point. It's in the middle of the whole book. It provides, in a sense, it provides the backdrop for all the struggles that Revelation addresses. All the, the battle and the conflict. Uh, this is sort of a behind-the-scenes explanation for things going on at the heart of these conflicts that are revealed here from Jesus to John. So the churches that John was writing to were facing increasing troubles at the hands of uh, primarily two groups, the unbelieving Jews and basically everybody else, <laughs> the, the, the Romans, the Gentiles, right? But uh, especially the Roman Empire. So uh, this chapter gives us a, it gives us the spiritual reality that's going on behind those persecutions, behind those increasing troubles that they're facing from those two groups. The chapter gives us the spiritual insight, what's happening in reality behind that. And that reality, that spiritual reality, is the dragon. That spiritual reality is the dragon, a.k.a. the serpent, a.k.a. the devil, a.k.a. Satan. Um, and he's been the main enemy of God's people since the beginning. And when other people in the world are stirred up against God's people, this is an explanation for this. Uh, really, the dragon is the one who's behind this. When, it, when people in the world are stirred up against the church, stirred up against God's people, it's the dragon who is behind it. The church might see real opposition from other people, right? When you look in somebody's face and they're malicious or they're hostile and they're baring their teeth and they're coming at you with weapons, uh, you, can, you can have a real opposition uh, that you sense from other people, but the church needs to understand that the dragon is the true enemy. The dragon's the one behind that. In his uh, most memorable passage on this same theme in Ephesians 6, Paul writes that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our main fight is not with other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even if people are persecuting us, <clears throat> we don't fight people. We don't fight people. We fight the dragon. And this chapter gives us some of the most important contours of the story of the fight between God's people and the dragon. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. <clears throat> uh, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, by your Holy Spirit, fire our hearts with the truth of your word and help us to know where the true battle lies and how it is won. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <coughs> Uh, we're not going to talk about every every verse, every uh, detail of the passage, as usual, sorry. Um, but the dragon, he's obvious. Uh, the dragon is an ancient symbol, and it's almost a universal symbol. Basically, every culture around the world, uh, whether they're connected to each other or not, um, have this as a symbol. It's, the dragon is a symbol of terrible power, dominating and, and vicious and cunning power. And it's about the clearest explanation of anything that we have in the book of Revelation, who this, who this dragon is, right? In verses 9 and 10, where uh, John describes who this dragon is, he's the devil. He's the devil. That's not just a personal name, right? It means slanderer. Uh, he's Satan. Again, not just a personal name. It means adversary. It means enemy, opponent. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters in the church. He's the ancient serpent that we find in Genesis 3. <clears throat> so he's, he's a personal cosmic power. Uh, he's not just some impersonal force behind all things that are evil. He's a personal power, but he's a cosmic power. But as a created being... He is no match for the Creator. He's not God's equal. He's an angelic spiritual being who rebelled against his own nature, rebelled against Yahweh, the one true God, and who leads a host of fallen angels like himself in war against God. <clears throat> it's uh, depicted there in that his tail sweeps down a third of the stars from heaven so that they fall to earth. These fallen angels 
maybe not exactly a third of all the angels in heaven, but a substantial number of the angels in heaven uh, are led by the dragon in a war against God that is already doomed to failure and always has been. Um, he manifests himself visibly in the form of a serpent. That's where we first see him in the scriptures and actually frequently and here in the, in the book of Revelation frequently as the dragon, right? A serpent or a dragon, which is a fiery winged serpent. And that probably indicates that he's a certain type of angelic being. It probably indicates that he's a seraph, that, that he's one of the seraphim. That Hebrew word seraphim is translated in Numbers 21 as fiery serpents. These are the ones that were um, killing the people of God, and then they put a, a bronze serpent on a pole. Uh, and that's that word, fiery serpent, is the word seraphim. And uh, in Isaiah 6, we see that the seraphim are the six-winged angels who are flying in God's presence, calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, old, the whole earth is full of his glory. So this particular seraph apparently wasn't satisfied with that role. He wasn't interested in that role. And in his jealous pride, he made himself the enemy of Yahweh. He made himself the enemy of God. And his first recorded act of rebellion, we, we aren't really given a reason to think that there was some pre-creation rebellion necessarily in the scriptures, but that his rebellion probably began at the same time our rebellion began, which was in the garden in Genesis 3. That's the first recorded act that we have of his rebellion when, <clears throat> when the serpent attacked the woman in her relationship with God. And it's something interesting to note that in that account, at that point in Genesis, the woman had not yet been named Eve. She was just the woman. And that's language that we find in our passage. She's simply called the woman, and that's who, this, that's who the serpent attacked. <clears throat> he didn't attack her physically. He probably could have, but he didn't. He didn't really even attack her psychologically. That's something that we suspect, uh, especially in our culture, the way that we have uh, the, the devil depicted in movies. <laughs> Uh, but he, he attacks people psychologically. It's a horror movie when the devil shows up, right? You're supposed to be terrified and cringing and basically frightened to death. But that's not how he attacks either. He didn't attack the woman physically. He didn't attack her psychologically. He attacked her spiritually. And that means that the serpent deceived the woman so that she doubted and disobeyed God. And his intended result was to have people, humanity, people like us, sever our own relationship with God. That was his intent. And that was the, the aim of his attack, was to have us sever our own relationship with God. He couldn't do that harm to us directly. And he can't. He can't do that harm to us directly. It was something we had to do to ourselves. And it's something that we were all too willing to do and remain all too willing to do. And so, in the garden, death came into the world as our first parents sinned, and therefore were spiritually sundered from God, the relationship broken, 
and then sided with God's enemy in that moment in his doomed war against God. But God immediately cursed that ancient serpent, and in his curse, <clears throat> we find the first promise of the gospel. It says in Genesis 3.15, I, God says, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. It's a, it's a killing blow. And you shall bruise his heel. Not a killing blow. The serpent had won humanity to his side, but God was promising that he was going to win humanity back. Because as of this moment, in Genesis 3, there was no enmity between the serpent and humanity. We had joined him in his war against God, but God said... He was going to win humanity back to his side. Even though we were now God's enemies, God would reconcile with us and he would put the enmity back where it belonged between the serpent and the woman and between their offspring. And so we find the promise that the woman's offspring would defeat the serpent, that he would crush the power of the dragon underfoot. So now I think we're starting to see the picture in Revelation 12, coming to clearer focus, that the woman is the one whose offspring would defeat the dragon. Here in Revelation 12, she's not just a single person. She is a symbol. And she's a symbol for the corporate people of God, both before the birth of the Savior and after the birth of the Savior. She's a symbol for the corporate people of God. She's the, the mother of all living. That was, Eve's, uh, that was why Eve was na named what she was, because she would be the mother of all living. She's the heavenly Jerusalem who's our mother. And so, it says in our passage, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So similar language to that appears in in Genesis 37, in Joseph's vision, where he had a dream about the sun and the moon and the stars, there were 11 of them, and he was the 12th, right? So they represented Joseph's father and mother and 11 brothers and himself. So th this language is representative of the family of Israel. It's the family of the promise. It's the family of the people of God. And the woman, then, clothed with this symbolic imagery is the people of the family of God, the people of the Messiah throughout the ages, the people from whom the Messiah would come. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. It's this people being shaped so that the, the Messiah would come from this people, and also the people for whom he would come, and the people after his coming. So John records there having been these signs in heaven. He's using specific language there that that could mean, actually, that there were signs in the stars in the sky, right? So that was one of the explicit purposes for God's having created the stars and the heavenly bodies. Uh, in Genesis 1, it says they, they're there for signs. God put them there for signs. So apparently, uh, <clears throat> somebody did research on this, and it's in commentaries. Uh, I didn't do the research, but I believe the commentators, that apparently a, a constellation shaped like a dragon 
looked like it was chasing Virgo, uh, one of the zodiac constellations, Virgo uh, being the Latin for virgin. Uh, and the sun was passing through Virgo's body while the moon was at her feet on September 11th in the year 3 BC. And that's probably pretty close to the day of Jesus' birth. <laughs> Somewhere in the vicinity. Whether this astronomical sign is what G John is referring to or not, he is ultimately speaking of the birth of the promised serpent crusher, the dragon crusher. Which, of course, would have the dragon worried. And it had him in a panic all throughout history. The long history of God's people is described as the agony of giving birth. That's what it is here. Because the dragon is in hot pursuit, looking to stop the promise, at the very least looking to destroy the child after he was born. If he couldn't stop the child from being born, he would try to destroy the child, right? And he was as prepared as he could be. He was ready. He was in the right place at the right time and everything. He was, he was ridiculously powerless to stop God's promise. It says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He's standing there ready like a physician in the delivery room. And she gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Slipped through his fingers. That's, that's the gist of it. Right? The dragon had Herod ready to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, but he failed to kill the newborn Jesus. The dragon sent legions of his fallen angels to torment the countryside, but Jesus prevailed against them all. The dragon got free access to Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days to tempt him and to try to get him to doubt and disobey God. But Jesus prevailed. The dragon even entered Judas personally in order to betray Jesus to death on a cross. But Jesus rose from the dead. He kicked the teeth out of death's mouth, effectively crushing the head of the serpent, crushing the dragon's power, which is death. And he ascended to heaven where he rules forever and ever. He slipped through the dragon's fingers. <clears throat> the dragon was ridiculously powerless to stop Jesus. To, what he wanted to do was to break Jesus' relationship with God, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't break Jesus' relationship with God, which was lived out on our behalf in order to restore our relationship with God. Jesus came to crush the power of the devil, and there was nothing the devil could do to stop him. So now, the relationship with God that we had sundered through our sin, is mended, and Jesus has put the enmity back where it belonged. He's won us away from the devil's side in a doomed war against God, and he's made it known to us that the dragon is our true enemy. <clears throat> and so now, in verse 6, you've got the woman fleeing into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That, that uh, length of time symbolic of, uh, it's a good long time, but it's, uh, it's not going to be forever. It's, it's a half of seven, right? Half of seven years. 1260 days is three and a half years, half of seven. 
So <clears throat> the woman, the messianic community, the people of Christ, the church, represented by this woman fleeing into the wilderness, is safe. The church is safe, actually. She has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. She's safe. She's being taken care of by God, even though it's in the wilderness. And the wilderness throughout the scripture is a place of temptations. It's the place where the devil attacks God's people. It's the place of tests and trials and tribulations and difficulties. Even in that very place, the church is in a place of security because of her relationship with God. Because her relationship with God has been secured by Jesus. <clears throat> and this is because she's safe, because ultimately the devil's power to harm her has been broken. It's already been broken. And that's true because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he's undone the devil's destructive power and he's reconciled us to God. And so <clears throat> that is pictured by him. And uh, here in this, in uh, verse 7, his angels um, defeating the dragon and his angels, right? So Michael and the angels who are loyal to Christ defeat the dragon and his angels who have rebelled against Christ. So you can read a little bit more about Michael in Daniel 10 and 12. Uh, my angelology isn't super great. I'm not sure all the details about that particular angel. Uh, suffice it to say, he's considered a, um, a faithful angel and one loyal to Christ and strong and that the Lord Jesus who is a human being is in command of him and the heavenly host and his will was done when Michael cast the dragon out of heaven when no more place was found for the dragon in heaven making him unable to do any true harm to those who are citizens of heaven so it says in verse 9 the dragon was thrown down to the earth Again, uh, probably it's best for us to translate that, that word earth as land, which helps us to remember that this is symbolic. Um, the land is the place in Revelation that represents the unbelieving Jews. So the dragon was thrown down upon the unbelieving Jews. The dragon couldn't get his hands on the woman or on her offspring, those who were uh, faithful to Christ the dragon couldn't do any real harm to Christ or to his people so he turned his attention on attacking the land and attacking even the church through the land attacking the church through the unbelieving Jews who persecuted the church so we'll talk more about that part of the story next week the main thing we should take away this morning is this Jesus has already overcome the dragon and so have we who trust in Christ. Jesus has already overcome the dragon, and so have we who trust in Christ. It says in verse 10, <clears throat> I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the, sal now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So for a long time, centuries, millennia, thousands of years, the church has assessed the threat level of the enemy, and this is the dossier that we've compiled on him. He has three main tools. And we've already seen these, actually, in our liturgy and the prayers of the people. He tempts us 
He deceives us and he accuses us. He tempts us to doubt and to disobey God. He deceives us about the truth of God. He lies about God. And he accuses us as sinners who deserve God's condemnation. He accuses us before God. So the temptations, the deceptions, the deceits, and accusations of the devil, those are the tools that are available to him. But for all this, he has no power. He has no power over God's people, over Christ's people, because he cannot ultimately ruin our relationship with God. He can't touch our relationship with God. That relationship is restored and it is secured by the blood of Jesus himself. Jesus has once and for all mended that relationship. The dragon can't touch it. And Christ's people believe that. Christ's people trust the word of God. And we entrust our judgment to the one who has shed his blood for us. The dragon can't make us doubt God. The dragon can't make us disobey God. He can only tempt us to it. The dragon can't make us believe lies about God. He can only tell the lies and try to convince us of them. The dragon can't bring down God's wrath on our heads. He can only accuse us before God or maybe even accuse us to ourselves in our consciences. But we have the blood of the Lamb and we have the word of our testimony. So the dragon can try to drive a wedge in between us and God, but as long as we hold on to the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, the dragon cannot succeed. He cannot harm us. And that's why in Paul's famous passage about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, it's all just about, it's about standing in the place where you already are. It's about standing in a restored and secure relationship with God, just standing against the schemes of the devil the temptations and deceits and accusations, just standing in the place you already are by believing in God's word. That's the focus of all the spiritual warfare. Just enjoy the relationship with God that you have already by believing his word, holding fast to your testimony, the blood of the lamb. <clears throat> the dragon could sort of ratchet up the pressure and turn the screws and have us persecuted physically and psychologically and uh, even to the point of death. He could do those things, but as long as we have the blood of, la of the Lamb and hold on to the word of our testimony about God's grace to us in Christ, this says we've already conquered the dragon. The enemy's already been conquered. <clears throat> and yes, of course, it's Jesus who has conquered the dragon. Praise the Lord, because he has the victory. But here it says, we have conquered the dragon. When we hold on to Jesus, so praise the Lord who gives us the victory, who shares it with us. It's our victory, too. <clears throat> so now the dragon is thrashing around like a wounded and caged animal because he knows that his time is short, it says in verse 12. And people in the land or sea, which is the unbelieving Jews or the Gentiles, they have something to worry about his wrath. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world the dragon, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But he couldn't touch Jesus, and he can't touch us. He has no place in heaven, 
which is the, the place that represents the people of God, the true people of God. And so the dragon, I mean, he got Jesus onto the cross, but Jesus conquered him. The dragon might pull down the world around us in his wrath, but we've conquered him by trusting in the blood of the Lamb because we know that the right man is on our side and he must win the battle. We know who the true enemy is. The true enemy has been cast down and the woman and her offspring, the church, is safe in God's care. No matter what lies that doomed deceiver peddles, you just hold on to the testimony of the blood of the Lamb and stand in your restored relationship with God by His grace. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, that old enemy is greater than we are, but he is not greater than you are, and he cannot thwart a single of your purposes. And your son has faced him off and knocked him down, especially by his sacrifice of love at the cross, where your true character becomes clear and beautiful to us, where we entrust our judgment to you, and you've reconciled us to yourself, and you've won us to your side. We all continue to face the dragon's schemes. We face his temptations and deceits and accusations in various ways. And we pray that you would help us to identify those spiritual attacks for what they are. And we pray that you would help us to be confident in the blood of the Lamb that gives us all the victory over our only true enemy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.